Okay, hello. I'm uh, Dr. Lori Marker, and I'm the founder and executive director of the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Safari Podcast. Y'all, uh, I am so excited to be continuing season four today with a guest that I have dreamt of having on this podcast for a very long time. When we talk about conservation organizations, and especially ones that are really respected and really well-established, it's impossible to not end up speaking about the Cheetah Conservation Fund, right? They are one of the best to be doing it. And um, when I first started to get into conservation, they were a name that constantly came up. I was constantly hearing about the Cheetah Conservation Fund, and of course, their founder, Dr. Laurie Marker. And because of that, I kind of realized that, you know, this is a person who I've come to respect and a person who I really enjoy the work they do. And yet, I don't really know much about her. By the time I got to this world, CCF was hugely established, really popular. People love it. Doing great work. Yay. But who is the person behind it? And today, we really get into that. Um, Dr. Marker had an entire life before getting into cheetahs, and uh, it's, it's a pretty cool story. And then on top of that, one of the things that I didn't realize is that so many of the conservation initiatives that we hear of different organizations using— uh, were started by CCF and and kind of discovered by Dr. Marker. This is a really cool story, not just about an incredible organization and the amazing work they do, um, but also of how one person can make a huge difference, not just for an amazing species like the cheetah, but also for the conservation world at large. And, you know, because of all of the amazing stuff that I have heard on this podcast, I am feeling inspired. So I am going to do something we haven't done for a little while on here, which is I am going to set up a uh, fundraiser for the Cheetah Conservation Fund. And it's a lofty goal, y'all. But if we raise $500, we can actually sponsor a livestock guarding dog for a year in Africa. And that's what I want to do. And if you don't know why I'm talking about dogs in an episode about cheetahs, uh, trust me, you're going to hear all about it. And it is incredible. It's, It's such a beautiful story. And so I want us as a community, to sponsor a livestock guarding dog. So for the next two weeks or so, I got to look at how I can do this all online. Uh, I'm going to be running a fundraiser for CCF with the ultimate goal being raising $500 and having a Rasafari sponsored uh, livestock protecting dog in Africa. Oh, and actually, um, I just recently got an email, I just remembered this, uh, from CCF saying that all donations are doubled right now. And of course, I could say, well, because of that, we only need to raise $250. But no, 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 no. For the rest of this month, uh, which is August, in case you're, you know, not listening recently, it was August of of 2023, um, and the uh, the donations are doubled. So if we can raise this $500, we can arguably sponsor two dogs in Africa. Could we raise more? Let's find out, y'all. Let's see what we can do to help this amazing, amazing organization. Oh, and one last thing before uh, we get to the interview. I just wanted to say a huge thanks to a lot of people who had to come together to make this interview happen. While we were trying to schedule an interview, Dr. Marker was on tour in different places through the U.S. I was also on tour, but a different kind of tour, through different places in the U.S., and then was back in Namibia, where CCF has one of their headquarters, and then was in Somaliland when we were finally able to talk. So coordinating all 
all of this truly took a full team, including Susan, Dion, and Paula at CCF. And I also want to say thank you to my good friend and uh, a, a wonderful listener who I've, I've gotten to know well through this podcast, uh, Mark Hansen, who made this connection with CCF for me and, and kind of got me in the door. Um, and it was just, it was really cool having a whole team working together, seeing the value of having CCF on the podcast and, um, honestly making me feel like this was important to all of them. I'm, I'm eternally grateful to that. So without further ado, get ready to get inspired by my interview with Dr. Laurie Marker of the Cheetah Conservation Fund. And I uh, work between Namibia and Somaliland and all the other range states where cheetahs might live or maybe want to live again if they've been extinct. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for doing this. When I um, launched the podcast a little over three years ago now, um, I had a kind of dream guest list, and you were on that first list. Uh, I just respect what you do so much, and I'm so excited to have you here. So thank you for that. Um, One thing that I wanted to do and what I kind of wanted to start with was I feel like so many people that get involved in the conservation world do so – you know, they come in and there are these these places that are already so established. Everybody knows CCF. I mean, everybody in this world knows CCF, which is good. But how how did it start? How did you like I want to know what led to the creation of CCF, what your early life was like, the stuff that people don't know when they come in and are just like the juggernaut, you know? Yeah, I know. It didn't just grow off of trees, right? <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get started with like conservation? Like what's your, what's your educational background when you were a kid? Did you like animals? All that good stuff. Well, I definitely liked animals when I was a kid and I was supposed to be a vet, but I grew up on the back of my horse and I always had dogs and cats and rabbits and goats. And uh, again, I was supposed to be a vet, but instead I went to agriculture school and my first degree in is as a winemaker and a grape grower. So I did take agriculture seriously um, and learned an awful lot. I think it's very important to have that agriculture background as well. But when I moved to um, Oregon from California, where I was in Napa, and I helped um, develop the Oregon wine industry as one of the actual pioneers, I guess, uh, there was a wildlife park that had just opened. And this was in the early 1970s. And um, I needed a job to support my business and went in and said, I lived right down the road and my background is in animals. And by the way, I'm going to donate a couple of my dairy goat kids to you for your petting zoo. So um, I said, can I get a job? And uh, my background had been as a vet tech. And so I basically got a job at the wildlife park and started caring for everything there was. I ran the veterinary clinic and took care of all the special animals. Um, And those special animals included things like cheetahs, as well as lions, tigers, and all these other amazing species. I worked with over 300 species of animals at that point in time. But my focus and interest was on cheetahs. So I fell in love with cheetahs. And they basically took my life. (laughs) (laughs) I love to ask this question, and I know that a lot of times there's not an answer, but why? Why was it cheetahs? What was it that made them your, like, heart animal when you're working with 299 other amazing species? (laughs) I know. They were all just so amazing. But I'd never seen a cheetah before. I didn't know really what a cheetah was. And asked a lot of questions, and everyone said, nobody knows anything about cheetahs. And I wrote to people really around the world and um, got back from everybody, a very collected group that said the same thing, which was cheetahs are a very difficult species. We're losing them in the wild. We know very little about them. They have a um, short lifespan in captivity. They don't breed well in captivity. And if you find out something about the cheetah, let us know. Well, there were very few cheetahs in captivity in the world. We had a um, group in Oregon where I was at the Wildlife Safari. And I was just amazed that 
this species that had been revered by kings and emperors and pharaohs for 5,000 years that we knew very little about this amazing species, the fastest of all the land animals. And I wanted to help the world know more about them. And so I started recording everything I could about the cheetahs that I was working with, developed the most um, successful breeding program for cheetahs in North America, and the third most successful in the world. But still, there were in America at that point, you know, 100 basically cheetahs in captivity. So the numbers are very, very small. And so felt that something needed to be done, and especially if we were losing them in the wild. And I ended up with that amazing research project in the middle 1970s, where I ended up in Namibia. At that point, it was called Southwest Africa. And um, that's where all the cheetahs had actually come from. And my job was to actually take a cheetah that had been born in captivity and take it back to Namibia to find out if a captive cheetah could learn how to hunt. So I've done a lot of full circle, but with that, um, this cheetah that I did take to Africa, I'd raised her from a tiny cub. And I think she, as a cheetah, looked at me and said, ah, this lady's going to work really hard for us. Um, and I always say by going to Africa, she gave me a vision and she showed me a path that needed to be taken to save the species. And that's the best way I can describe it because I basically um, dedicated my PhD to this cheetah because if it had not been for her and the first opportunities that I had, I would never have ended up in Namibia and saw what I saw. And that was not just beautiful cheetahs in the wild and beautiful Africa. I saw that the farmers were killing cheetahs like flies, eight to 900 a year. They hated them. They were vermin. And here I was thinking that they were the most amazing animal there was and couldn't understand why farmers hated them. So that's how I guess I fell in love with the cheetah is that nobody knew anything about them. And I wanted to know everything there was. And I wanted to share that with everybody in the world. That is so cool, and that is so inspiring. <laughs> I really love that. Why did farmers hate cheetahs? It's the same way they reason they hate all of our predators, a perceived threat to livestock losses. And um, there is actual livestock losses. And so when I moved back, I actually traveled to Africa a lot after that first trip. Um, and at that open, I think once they, they say, once you go to Africa, you never turned back. And so I finally ended up moving there in 1990. But between the middle 70s and the time I moved there, I traveled back and forth to Africa a lot because I wanted to find out more about where they were living. Uh, most of the cheetahs were found outside of protected areas and farmers were killing them. And I, you know, really, were they eating that much livestock that they could be killing that many cheetahs? Or was there other reasons and was it more of a perceived threat to their livestock loss than actual? And so when I did move there in 1990 after setting up the foundation, um, that was one of the first things I really wanted to tease out was what's going on on the ground with the farming communities and are they really killing that much livestock? Um, so, you know, those questions back in those days were just fascinating. But farmers hate predators. And they had, and there, there were other reasons to it as well, is that in the early, um, in the 60s, the population in, of cheetahs in East Africa had pretty much been thinned out very badly. Uh, many of these animals were going into zoos, and zoos, they had a very short lifespan. Um, CITES was not developed. CITES came forward in the early 1970s, and that stopped then any export of animals from the wild to be imported into zoos. And so zoos then had to start cooperating to breed animals together, which is the you know beginning of the zoos and modern zoos that we know today. But from that, um, you know, the cheetah numbers were very, very low worldwide in, in captivity. And in the wild, after the numbers were so small in East Africa, they came down to Namibia and started taking the animals from Namibia. And so there, there were game dealers that I got to know and 
unfortunately, many of them I helped close down in the first few years I was in Namibia because they basically would say, oh, yeah, I can sell your animals. So, you know, catch them and I'll sell them. But then in the 70s with CITES that went into effect, um, the farmers would catch the animals. They couldn't do anything with them. And so they just kill them. And there were more males caught than females, uh, but everybody wanted females for every one female cheetah that a dealer could sell. Um, they'd probably catch 20 males. And so you could see that kind of loss was just crazy. Um, and so that was one of the main reasons why the farmers were also catching them. And then, of course, they had to say to the government, oh, it's because they're catching their livestock. So, or wildlife. And so that's the other thing is that they, in Southern Africa, South Africa and Namibia, a lot of these game fenced farms started coming into effect. And a game fenced farm is a very high fence that animals can't jump out of. And so they're in a large fenced area, but they're wild game, which is what the cheetahs are supposed to eat. But if the cheetahs got in a game fenced farm, and it was like candy to a kid um, that they were catching wildlife. And then the farmers in these game fence farms were actually catching and killing more cheetahs than the livestock farmers were. So all of that became, you had to tease it out. And I feel that that's really important because now um, I'm also based in Somaliland after you know, 35 years almost of extensive research throughout other areas of Africa and Namibia. And we're finding with the illegal wildlife pet trade, it's almost a similar type scenario as that of why farmers were killing cheetahs in Namibia. In Somaliland and this region, what happens is that game dealers have found out, or poachers basically, illegal wildlife trade salesmen, um, <laughs> have found that People like them as a pet in the Middle East, and they have been able to come into these rural communities and say, find cheetahs, I'll buy them from you. And so a lot of the farmers here have also wrapped that around uh, the aspect of potentially catching their livestock. But primarily what they've done is they've figured out that they can go find the cubs and then sell them into the illegal wildlife pet trade. So, yeah, I see similarities, although I don't know if other people with the way I'm talking shortly, quick like this, whether you can understand those similarities. But that's what happens when people don't know things and um, and want money for animals. Absolutely. I know that um, with Red Panda Network, um, the uh, the founder there says that there can be no conservation on an empty stomach. And I always find that to be such a great line because it's true. If, if you're trying to feed your family or if you're trying to make a living, you don't care that an animal's endangered. You don't care that they're special. You just care that you're able to put, you know, food in the mouth. And then you can get into greed. And sometimes instead of it just being hunger, it's just they want their third car or whatever but like yeah i i definitely see the similarities and um i think the competition like with you know whether it's a farmer needing to not lose livestock to make a living or a poacher needing to put them into the wildlife trade it it, it it's the same story i definitely think you did a great job explaining why that is similar um i have a weird question uh, do cheetahs actually make good pets like, they shouldn't be pets. Don't get me wrong. But oh, does this make sense that people are using them as pets? Well, remember, they'd been revered by kings and emperors and pharaohs for 5,000 years. They're the most easily tamed of all the big cats. And with that, they've been loved to near extinction, um, in particular in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries is when Huge people, people all around Europe had cheetahs. Their problems are that they don't have a long lifespan. So they are a small cat. Um, they are built for speed. And um, with that, they don't have a lot of powerful body parts. And so they've got very small teeth. And so they can't eat you necessarily like a leopard or a lion can. Um, their teeth are, their canine teeth are smaller than a, well, it, German Shepherd, which is, you know, a good-sized dog, but cheetahs 
canines are smaller than that and their jaw pressure. They also are the only cat that has uh, semi-non-retractable claws, so they don't have sharp, powerful claws that can rip you up like a uh, leopard or a lion can. Their claws are more dog-like. And with that, because they are so fast and they don't have have a lot to protect themselves. They have what's called flight versus fight. And so you can chase them away from even their food. And so that when they're tiny cubs and you can get them when they're under a month, they bottle raise and they do tame up. Are they a good pet? No, of course not. But that's why they have been um, used and selected, I think, is that they're smaller than a lion and a leopard. Um, they're not hardy, unfortunately, and they unfortunately don't have a very long lifetime in captivity, which many of the people who have them as a pet, you're not going to give them a five or 10 acre area. Um, you're going to stick them in a little cage someplace. And they primarily die of, you know, a broken heart, stress-related diseases. They're not out there running like they're supposed to. So all of those are linked into these factors. Um, and so they're a nice, amazing animal to work with. But, you know, a pet, that's a dog or a cat, right? That you can, you know, put in your car, drive around, take it for a walk. You know, your house cat can, you know, sleep and curl up in bed with you. No, these animals shouldn't be doing that at all. But when, when people have this urge to overpower things, you know, I'm cool, I should have a lion or a leopard or a cheetah. You know, a lion or a leopard or a tiger could eat you where the cheetah's not going to. That makes sense. That Yeah, that, that's – yeah, because like I said, they should not be pets, obviously. But I was curious why there's such a – you know, uh, why there is such demand for them. And that does that does make a lot of sense. Um, and they're, so, you know, they're elegant and, and beautiful, but still. Oh, yeah. Not they're a good pet. And, they are amazing animals. And we've seen between two to 300 a year going over into the Middle East as pets over the last probably 10 years. And so that's why we've had to set up another base here in Somaliland working with the government where the animals are being confiscated if we hear about them. And now with the awareness that we're doing out and about in all these areas, the awareness is spreading and communities are letting us know and the government collects them. And then sadly, we have over 90 cheetahs sitting at our center here in Somaliland that have come in as tiny babies, um, almost dead. Uh, another 50 or more probably come in dead directly. And for every one animal that makes it into the pet trade, four or five of them die. And then if they only have a lifespan of a year or two, they fall in love with them and they want them more. So this is a huge, huge issue that most people don't know about. They know uh, the cheetah is the fastest land animal. They know it's kind of amazing. But beyond that, just to share with you a little bit more about, you know, why we should be caring about the cheetah is that it is the most unique of all the you know, 42 species of cats. It's the fastest of all the land animals. Um, it plays a very key role in the health of the ecosystems and the biodiversity that depends on healthy ecosystems. There are less than 7,000 cheetahs left in the world today. And they're found in 31 populations in 23 countries. We've lost cheetahs in the last 100 years that have gone extinct in 20 other countries. Wow. So the extinction is horrible. We've lost over 90% of the habitat and the number of cheetahs that are living in the world in the last 100 years. Most of the cheetahs are found outside of protected areas. Um, and that's why we have to work with the livestock farming communities throughout Africa. And within the 31 populations, 20 of those populations are under 100 individuals. So the last of the Asian cheetah are found in Iran. And there is only about 12 cheetahs there. So these are real critical issues that we're facing and dealing with. And... So from my work with the Cheetah Conservation Fund, when I set it up, it was to try to figure out ways to keep the cheetahs living free and in the wild. And with that, we've had to develop programs that work directly with people, the farmers on the ground, and then obviously working very closely with the governments 
in order to have them help develop programs that will also try to help save the species in their countries. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to kind of delve into some of the um, the different things that y'all are doing and the different programs um, and, you know, how you're trying to to save cheetahs. Uh, and I know there are a ton um, and I only know of some of them, I'm sure. But one of the things that I find fascinating is the livestock guarding dogs. So can you share that whole thing and even just how you came up with that idea? It's so cool. Yeah, no, the dogs are wonderful. Well, I was living in Oregon in the 70s. And um, just, you know, fascinating how much we as humans hate predators. Um, In the United States, there's obviously a huge lobby um, and and organizations within our beef and our sheep industries there. And the United States um, Agriculture Department was very concerned in the early 70s, should be still probably now, in the amount of poison that was being used against um, coyotes and actually domestic dogs. Um, a lot of it really around the areas where there were um, farmers, the cattle farmers. Um, and so the poisons were causing a huge problem. But if you look at the coyote, which is interesting, similar to our jackals here in Africa, and other species that when you um, kill a lot of them, they actually over-reproduce. And so the agriculture department was putting huge amounts of money, millions, into trying to um, stop these predators from coming in and eating the livestock, and it wasn't working. And so they said, maybe there's some other solutions. And so a team actually from, um, from Hampshire College went over to um, Europe and started looking at the um, livestock guarding dogs that were on the ground and, and herders were using them and had been using them for five to 6,000 years. And yet people had forgotten many of the old ways of living with predators. And um, there's about 20 different breeds of livestock guarding dogs. And so they brought back several different breeds into the United States and started looking at um, at how they were doing. And so it was a very large research project. And part of those um, dogs came to Oregon in the area where I was living, which was in a very large sheep um, um, community. And uh, I've learned all about the dogs there. And the dogs that I selected that I was most interested from these 20 different breeds was the Kangle dog, also known as the Anatolian Shepherd, which comes from Turkey. And they are a very large breed. All of these are large breeds. But why I selected the Kangal is that they live in vast open spaces, um, unattended. And so they're an independent thinker. Many of the other breeds are um, like to be closer to homesteads. Oftentimes in Europe, um, a lot of the ranching or the farming now has come into kind of backyard farms. And the dogs prefer to be closer in where the Anatolian Shepherd and the Kangle Dogs actually are, um, for thousands of years, have been covering huge areas in the Anatolian Plateau. And so they um, they move a lot. And they also are very short-haired. Their coat is short-haired, but they also are used to fluctuating temperatures like we have in Namibia, which is a high desert. And with that, we've got very, very cold nights, and we can have very, very hot days. Uh, and we can have very, very hot days and hot nights, but um, and the, the desert that we're in, that these dogs are uh, are very used to that kind of climatization. And, um, and so that's why I selected that breed. They are large. We've raised them up with the small stock as well as now we've been placing them with, um, with cattle as well, but there's a difference in that. The small stock, they're easier to work with because they go back and forth with the small stock. Um, the large cattle are harder to actually work with to place the dogs with. But they grow up with whatever they're going to be taking care of. And then they become the guardian of that animal. And they guard by being alert and aware. And they bark loudly if there are intruders. And if an intruder does come in, then they will fight to the finish. A lot of people think that predators are wanton livestock catching animals, that they just are out there wanting to eat your livestock, and they really aren't. They're opportunistic. 
And so if you can, you know, protect your, your livestock, then the predators won't come in. And the way that these dogs work is that they actually mark territory, they bark loudly, and that um, the predators know that the flock is then protected and avoid that area. And so that's a lot of what is uh, is important. And we've been now breeding and working with these dogs for, I think, about 27 years and have bred and placed over 750 dogs and placed them with farmers throughout Namibia. And we see between an 80 to 100% decrease of livestock loss due to all of the predators, uh, not just the cheetah, but all the other predators as well, from the leopards and caracal and jackal to you know even the human predator. Uh, and so from that, though, we've saved a lot of different predators just having the dogs there and teaching the farmers about better livestock management. So we have a program that goes along with this that we call Future Farmers of Africa, where it's an integrated training program where we teach them about the management of their grazing lands, as well as that of their wildlife, as well as livestock, and how predators live within the system. And therefore, what we really want is to have a healthy system that has wildlife, livestock, and predators all in it, which can be done. And those are the things that we practice and we teach. So we do have a working farm um, and we practice all of these aspects. So we, I'm a farmer still, and um, we raise goat, sheep, and cattle, as well as being on a wildlife reserve. It's not fenced. It's called a conservancy. And there at our model farm, people come and we teach them all about the um, kind of techniques that we use and more about how the animals are living. And so they understand a lot of people don't understand behavior of wildlife and especially the predators, which they're afraid of. And the more they learn, the more they can understand how they too can live in harmony with wildlife. That's really cool. I love that so much. I think education centers are really important and it's hard for a conservation organization to get big enough and be well-funded enough that they can do that kind of thing. Uh, the fact that y'all have this property and are able to bring people onto it is really special. That's very cool. Well, we've got, so in Namibia, we've got an um, amazing place and now we've built um, something now in Somaliland as well, modeling very similar to that of Namibia because education is critical. And we've worked with, in Namibia, nearly 50,000 farmers. And that has a lot to do with, what we try to do is to fix the system, not the problem. And the um, the problems come from the bottom and the cheetah is kind of at the very top of this pyramid, but we have to try to fix everything in between. And that's what we're doing here in Somaliland at the same time is taking the successful programs that we've had in Namibia and adapting them and bringing them to Somaliland. But unfortunately in Somaliland, they don't like dogs. And so the dogs aren't going to be one of the solutions here. Oh, that's weird and fascinating, but who doesn't like dogs? <laughs> well, it's, it's part of their religion. So, Oh, interesting. Um, Wow. Yeah. And they and and that's why our education and awareness is so important. I mean, at some point they said something and then it went down and to the the Quran and from there there's it's not really written in the Quran and so there's different ideas on why they don't like them or not. But um we're trying to help here with the street dogs because there's so many in spay and neutering. And we do the same thing in um in Namibia, where we've gone out and worked with the um, rural dogs on farmlands to um, vaccinate them against rabies and also um, canine distemper because um, the animals are all, the wildlife is living on the same land as these animals, and you can end up with a lot of cross-contamination with viruses and diseases, um, which, of course, you know because your wife is a vet. And was one of our interns in Namibia, where we do a lot of training of interns uh, of a variety of different um, disciplines. So obviously, much of our work is around biomedical, because we're fascinated with 
not only the cheetah, but the overall health of many of the wildlife species, as well as the genetics. And we do also have a genetics lab, which is much of the work that we're involved in to try to understand the, um, you know, when you end up with such a small population, there are uh, consequences of those, which are also reproductive consequences and health consequences. And so we study all those different aspects around the cheetah. And so we do have a registered veterinarian clinic um, and several vets that work with us to not only take care of the cheetahs, but also, as I said, the we call it the One Health program out in the villages with the communities, which ties into our Future Farmer of Africa program as well, that we work with the farming communities and then often bring them to CCF. And then with our school programs, we've taken what we do to try to teach the school children more about why the cheetah is special. And our um, programs are called A Predator's Role in the Ecosystem. And so we teach how, how a predator fits into the ecosystem. Obviously, you have to start with what's an ecosystem. Um, and so the cheetah is a wonderful um, teaching tool because it does play a key role and it also brings in the aspects of one health disease as well as that of uh, livestock and and you know humans food chain and so the cheetah has been pretty amazing with what we can utilize it for and work with people of all ages to try to help give them the awareness to hopefully save the species that is really cool. And, um, you know, I, I know that you mentioned um, the success that you've had as far as with the livestock loss in particular from 80 to 100 percent of, um, you know, an improvement there, which is remarkable. Uh, how are you feeling? How How is the success of the overall program going? Well, I think the success continues to um, go well. Um, when we've seen such a high number of offtake over the years. Um, previously to our being there that, um, I mean, extinction doesn't happen overnight. It does take time. And we have watched quite a decline of the population throughout its ranges. We do work in many of the different ranges um, to try to develop programs that are similar to ours in other countries. Um, stabilizing the population, though, has been a big part of the work that we've done in Namibia by working directly with the farming communities. And so a lot of what we do is track the animals. We put radio collars on them or satellite collars. Um, and some of what we're doing now is we actually have uh, a kind of an invisible fence around farms where when the animal with the collar on, we can put a uh, kind of a grid up in our computer program. And if the cat goes through that area, we are then alerted to that. We can let the farmers know that these animals are on their, their farm and for them to be a little bit more vigilant around their livestock management and viewing their livestock. And that, I think, has been um, very successful. But, you know, you can't find every cheetah and collar every cheetah either. Um, and so a lot of it is working with the farmers to be more observant and take more of the responsibilities themselves into care of their their livestock. And I think overall, that's been probably one of the most successful things, working with the government for so long. The government's um, human-wildlife conflict laws basically say um, the wildlife in Namibia, the wildlife belongs to the landholder. And um, in communal conservancies, the communities are the ones that manage the wildlife working with the government. And from that, um, that's a lot of benefit that you have with the wildlife. And you can utilize it for ecotourism and for, you know, many other aspects. But from that, managing it appropriately is important. And so our government laws basically say, well, you know, don't, if you lose your livestock after 35 years of Namibia's independence and having people like the Cheetah Conservation Fund helping teach you and give you tools like the dogs and teaching you about good livestock management techniques that you should actually be employing those techniques instead of coming with a handout that says, I lost my livestock, pay me for that. And um, 
So those kinds of compensation programs, we are not all that in favor of because a lot of the farmers actually used to use that for their benefit and not to the benefit of the um, overall welfare of their livestock. And so they were getting paid for losing their livestock, which became a job in its own right. And I guess if you're a hardened farmer, you don't care if anything's eating your livestock. There is a humaneness to that or an animal welfare. And so what we're trying to do is to actually give tools to the farmers and not have them just have their hand out. And with that, not have livestock losses. And from that, we're seeing a bounce back in some of the population in some of the areas. That's really cool. I, I love that. I think I think that y'all do some of the most innovative conservation work that I, I have heard of. Um, I love talking to conservation organizations, but oftentimes it's just the the same – I don't know, the same story with a different species. And I feel like y'all have really gone above and beyond mm-hmm. to come up with some really innovative things. Well, we have tried hard, um, and a lot of it has been around – understanding what the problems are. And when I first set up the foundation, I went door to door for three years working with the farmers, trying to find out, tried to get in their head, basically. How did they how did they farm? What were they farming? Where was their water? What kind of camps did they have? When did they have calving seasons? Did they have calving seasons? You know, what were their issues with wildlife? Where did they see predators? And I got all of this information, which is the basis of the work that we do. And then asking the farmers by hearing from them and then telling them the cheetah story um, and asking for a solution from them. And that solution can't just be kill them all. Um, The solution really needed to come from them. And they basically said, well, we don't really know anything about the cheetah. We catch them. We kill them. We know they're on our land. We think they're a dog. Oh, really? Are they a cat? So, I mean, all of these things was where I started, you know, 35 years ago. And um, the farmers said, we don't know about wildlife, even though we got wildlife on our land and we're the managers of it. We know very little about livestock management, even though we are livestock farmers. And the rural communities knew nothing about livestock management, nothing about what's a vaccination, what's a dewormer, why is my animal sick? Do I really have to trim its hooves? All of those aspects. And then the other thing, because they knew nothing about how these predators were living. So that started us on all of our work with, you know, radio collaring and home ranges and getting them to see how far these animals were ranging and that it was, you know, not just one animal coming on their land, that they were, you know, animals that were covering, you know, up to 20 farms. And so the last thing they said was that, you know, we've been in isolation here in Namibia, and our children know nothing about conservation education. And so those were the points that laid all our programs. And so we developed an education program, teachers' guides, farmers' guides, wildlife guides, and trying to help them then with the model farm, too. And um, livestock um, isn't a huge economic benefit. And so secondary industries, I think, are important. And One of my jobs when I was uh, young, I was a goat judge. And so I traveled around (laughs) the United States and I judged goats. And I love my goats. (laughs) And I I love them. And I love to take care of them. And I, as I always say, I am a farmer. I don't want to lose my livestock. And I'm a wildlife biologist. I don't want to kill the the wildlife. Uh, We can live together. And so... um, we started looking at livelihood development and that's when instead of just having your meat goats, which everybody carries their meat goats with them because many of them are pastoral or they're moving. Uh, oftentimes where cheetahs are living too, or in some of the most arid landscapes. So you can't grow vegetables or fruits. And so having the livestock on the hoof is basically their, their food and their livelihood. And so with that, we started teaching them more about dairy goat farming. And you can actually not kill your goat and have milk year-round. And with that milk, um, and it doesn't take as much grass as a cow does, that if you have a milk goat, you can actually make cheeses and 
Um, those cheeses become part of protein and you don't even have to have refrigeration. So many of those aspects are other that we're also looking at, but also um, other livelihoods. You can make soaps or fudge and things like that that you can sell. So that's one aspect that we've looked at. And then on another level, you know, with so much livestock, you do end up with habitat degradation. And I think our, our world is probably not in as good of shape because of the amount of livestock that's on the land. And if you have a lot of it and you're not taking very good care of it, you're going to have more, but you're going to probably lose more and they're not going to be as healthy. So if you have a healthy herd of livestock and you're vaccinating it properly and deworming it properly, um, you don't need as many because they're going to be healthy and you can sell them for more money. So that's another thing is kind of looking at those aspects, but why is the land so degraded? And with huge amount of livestock on arid lands, you end up with um, um, aspects of desertification. And in many of the countries that we're working in where the cheetahs are, there's thorn bushes that have taken over a lot of the land because the lands have been grazed down to nothing. And with this, many of these thorn bushes are very, very adaptable. And as soon as you do end up with rain, their roots take off and their roots go, you know, six to 10 times deeper than the plant is tall, drinking all of the water, the underground water, which is why it's called a form of desertification. But we call it a thickened thorn bush or bush encroachment, which has taken over in Namibia about 50% of the land. And we found that farmers were killing more predators because of this um, bush encroachment. And again, coming from Oregon, where we've got quite a timber industry, I used to see a lot of chip trucks going by. And I thought, well, you know, I bet that bush that's out here has value. And a lot of the farmers were just cutting it down. And with that, when you cut it, it's like blackberry bushes. It grows even thicker and thicker and thicker. And so that was causing even more problems. Um, and so we developed a um, systematic approach to harvesting the bush and came up with a biomass program where we're making um, clearing habitat, which is a Forest Stewardship Council certified organization we are or fsc certified um, and so we will harvest the bush at about a 70 percent harvest rate and we chip it and we put it through an extruder and make a fuel log which is very similar to like a duraflame log in the united states except ours have no additives and it's an eco log and we've actually won quite a few awards with it because we put a lot of people to work, we've made a um, high, um, it burns at a high heat with very low emissions. And now we've taken our biomass program even to greater levels where we're um, looking at a variety of other products that could be even um, bigger by um, harvesting in a bigger way that could then take over 50% of our country's land that is so thickly thorn bush that nothing can even there's no grass that grows so we've reduced our wildlife populations the economy for our livestock because of not being able to stock the land but what we want to do is improve the grazing land and bring back more wildlife and manage our livestock and then predators can be on the land we can have more cheetahs so that's another project that we did. And the farmers were killing more predators because they could not kill the bush. And so um, so we developed that program. And that kind of a program is something that we're looking at even in several of the other um, range countries that we are working in. But it has been quite a process to develop a program like this in Africa. I believe it. That's absolutely incredible. And that's so cool. I, I have a weird question maybe, but when you got into like trying to save cheetahs, did you know just how dang much you were going to have to be like helping humans and doing things that had nothing to do with cheetahs on the surface, although they clearly do? Not at all. <laughs> um, um, I had no, and back when I started, you know, um, 
People didn't know that either. When I set up the Cheetah Conservation Fund in 1990, it was the first predator organization that was not working in a game reserve, just studying the animals in the park. And I already knew what a cheetah looked like and had been working with it for such a long time. Really felt that uh, we needed to work on the ground with the people on whose land the cheetah was living. But I had, um, again, it was organically grown out of the needs from the farmers and started just putting pieces together. And that's how we've developed our programs. But again, we started, nobody else had ever done this before. Absolutely incredible. There's one other thing, because I know we're running out of time here, but there's one other thing that I really wanted to talk about, um, which is a newer initiative, which kind of blew my mind, uh, which is the reintroduction of cheetahs to India. Um, so I know that there were cheetahs in India and then they went extinct in the area. And now CCF has reintroduced some cheetahs into India. Um, and they're, they're African cheetahs, but I guess genetically they're so similar that there's no difference. Um, but I would love to hear about that, um, both why you're doing it and like what the thought process was. That seems like a big project to me. Well, it's a very big project, but we've known, as I said in the beginning, that there have been about 20 countries where the cheetah has gone extinct in the last 100 years. And I got started doing my research back in the 70s, trying to find out what steps could be involved in bringing cheetahs back if indeed they went extinct. And so it was groundbreaking um, research and found that a, a cheetah could learn how to hunt. And so we've carried that forward with um, at CCF in Namibia, we've had a we've got a sanctuary where we do end up with um, cheetah cubs that come in. Most of them are not in at um, when they're tiny babies, and so they're not bottle raised, which means they're a little bit wilder. And you can raise them up until they're a couple years of age, um, and then work on putting them back out into the wild. A captive, an animal that's been bottle raised, you don't really want to do that with because although they might learn how to hunt, they kind of are not afraid of humans and so want to be where humans are and could come into where your goats and cattle are. So we don't use animals like that. But this has been a process that's been ongoing. And when India lost their cheetahs in the 50s, they wanted to have uh, always wanted to figure out a way of bringing cheetahs back. And how do you go about doing that? Around 2009, there was a um, important meeting that came together with people like IUCN, the Cat Specialist Group, the Reintroduction Specialist Group, the Veterinary Specialist Group. And our job was to work with the forest rangers and the government of India to find um, and recommend solutions for potential reintroduction of cheetahs back into India. And one of the things that first came forward was, well, which subspecies? And as we went round in circles on this, most of the populations are so thin and small that there are not enough animals to actually bring back population from, let us say, in um, Asia. The last of the Asian cheetahs, which is where India is, is um, in Iran. And there today are only about 12 cheetahs left in Iran. So there are obviously not enough there to bring into India to reintroduce. India's population has been extinct for, you know, 50-some years. And so it was felt that we could only use a subspecies, of which there were a number of, that we could uh, bring more into for repopulating a population. So a population doesn't grow just from two animals. Um, and so you have to have enough animals to be able to reinforce and bring in. So that's why we selected the Southern African cheetahs. From there, then, where do you find habitat? And so the government um, rangers and researchers found um, several different reserves that they felt would be appropriate. A couple of reserves, one of them where the Kuno National Park is, was actually um, designated. Um, and, and then um, wildlife being there was looked at for the cheetah. So it was also originally looked at to split the Asian lion population, where the Asian lions are only found down in the south in a place called um, Gujarat. And that population has never been split. So they thought, oh, well, they could be split in Kuno up in Madhya Pradesh. 
But then the government in the south didn't want to move their animals to the north because then they'd get the tourism. They didn't want to split their tourism. So again, I'm just saying that there's a lot of politics that go into conservation <laughs> as well. And uh, the long and the short of it was that finally the Supreme Court said, all right, we're ready for cheetahs to come in. Where are you going to get them from? And Namibia has a very close relationship with India, which India supported um, Namibia in its um, independence struggle 35 years ago. And, um, and so India asked Namibia for a gift. And Namibia gifted India eight cheetahs. Now, eight cheetahs is not enough either. Um, and so South Africa um, has a, a, a very um, important metapopulation program and gave the government 12 cheetahs. But the Namibian cheetahs were ready to go first, and the MOU was signed between the two countries. And last September, um, September 2022, was when the first eight cheetahs went to um, India. And then in February of 2023, the 12 cheetahs from South Africa went. They've all gone through quarantine. Most all of them are out in the park reserves now. I've had staff there um, pretty much full time since um, last September. And so they have been very active in training the people in India about cheetahs, their behavior, how they move, how you work around them. We did a lot of training with um, the Indians also in Namibia prior to the cheetahs moving over the last couple of years. So that's sort of the process and how uh, it all came about and where we are today. Both Namibia and South Africa have agreed to uh, bringing more animals in over the years. Um, and it will be, again, a number of animals that will continue to go over there. Um, and to try to get the animals stabilized, settled in, and then breeding. That's just amazing. So they are hunting. I always say they like Indian food, so they're <laughs> hunting. The antelope are, are tasty to them, and so that's not a problem, and the habitat looks very similar to areas both in Namibia as well as South Africa where the cheetahs have come from. Very cool. Very cool. I think that is, I think that is so fascinating. That's just really awesome. Um, and I think it's so cool that they're back in there, you know, filling that ecological niche that, that has been left unfilled. Yeah. That's like not just important for the cheetahs, but it's important for the entire environment there. Right. And these systems. So, um, it's going to take more time. Um, and really a lot of this restoration of the cheetahs was for the grassland ecosystems. So these grassland ecosystems, which they call deadlands over there, um, are dead because there is very limited biodiversity. Whereas you get a top predator in, like the cheetah, you get uh, more biodiversity that comes in. And so the cheetahs actually help feed the veld. So they will they will make a kill, eat as rapidly as they can, but then oftentimes get moved out, even by you know jackals or even vultures. And with that, then they're feeding every other um, animal that is on the ground, is the insects, the birds. So I always say cheetahs are, are very generous in the way that they help. And if you are a farmer in Namibia, if you've got a cheetah on your land and it's made a kill and the jackals are there eating off of it, that means they're not going to be coming into your goat yard and eating all your goats. Makes sense. That's, that's awesome. Um, how can people help CCF? Well, I'd love people to learn more about what we do and get involved. Um, obviously, the work that we do um, does need funding, and so we are always looking for support. Um, helping us by going to our website, which is cheetah.org. And there's a lot of things on there that not only from educational materials and awareness and kids' things, but also things of how you can help get involved. Some of those might be in making a donation. It's always great. Make it monthly, please. <laughs> that helps too. It goes a lot further. Um, other ways might be to help sponsor a livestock guarding dog um, so that we can place it with the farmer. Or right now we have a um, hundred or more cheetahs that are living in our care at both our Namibian facility and that of our Somalilands facility. And you can sponsor a cheetah. You don't get it, but you get to read about it a couple times a year and help us support those animals. These animals actually 
per cheetah, it's about $5,000 per year per cheetah or about $500 per month per cheetah just to take care of them. And as I said, we've got about 100 that we're taking care of right now, helping both the governments of Namibia and Somaliland uh, because there are no other organizations who are, are doing this. Um, and these animals are very, very important. Um, and that provides drugs and, and medicines and help and care. You can also be a volunteer with us. So we've got organizations throughout the United States and in other countries. So in um, Europe, Canada, Great Britain, Italy, France, uh, Netherlands. So there are a lot of organizations around the world that are trying to also raise awareness and raise funds for us, Australia. So we welcome people to become a volunteer within our organizations, or you can volunteer over at either Namibia or Somaliland um, on the ground to help us with the work that we're doing first and foremost to keep cheetahs free and living in the wild. Uh, we've got internship programs, and so students in college uh, from around the world can also come and um, they can sign up for course credit within their schools um, and um, do research projects. We've got PhDs and master's students with us as well. So there's a lot of different ways that people can get involved. But if there is anybody out there who's listening, who likes cheetahs and can help send funding, funding is also very, very, very important. Very good. And then... It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Oh no, I knew that you were gonna talk about this. Yep. And I think I got a good one for you. So we, uh, with over the years, you know, we do a lot of sample collections. And so, we like blood and tissues, and uh, we like poop. We call poop black gold. <laughs> and so with that are the poop that we find, cheetah poop, we like it the best, um, is um, oftentimes collected, um, and we use scat detection dogs. We actually have trained dogs that go around and find poop for us. And they're trained to find cheetah poop and right now trained into African wild dog poop. So that's great. So the poop will come back and then it goes through our genetics lab. And from there, it gets extracted and you can take DNA out of it. We can learn a lot more about the individual cheetahs and the populations. But we can also wash the poop and look at it under a microscope. And you can find the hairs from what the cheetahs ate. And that allows us to also show the farmers that gee, cheetahs would rather have wildlife than they will eat your livestock. And we were able to learn a lot about this. This is an ongoing part of the research that we do to continually share with the farmers that um, cheetahs aren't just eating all their livestock, that they primarily like wildlife. So we like scat or poop or black gold. <laughs> and so I travel a lot and everywhere I go into different cheetah range countries, um, I am a cheetah scat collector and i have permits that are, which are our cites permits that come back to um and agriculture permits that come back to namibia and so if you pick me up at the airport you never can tell what's in my bag you might smell something there and you know sometimes they ask what's in your bag and all i can say is ah just some shit <laughs> It's all black gold. Amazing. Amazing. So, Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Absolutely. Well, I hope that some people who are listening love cheetahs and will help us save them. Our time is short. The time for the cheetahs is in our hands. If indeed we're going to save the species, it is in our hands as humans. If they're not a national park, it's all about what we know and what we can do to save them. And that's going to take a lot of manpower on the ground, continuing programs like ours and the support. But we welcome people to help us and hope that people will help save the cheetah. Our motto is change the world and save the cheetah. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. So go to our website, cheetah.org. Thanks. 
Well, you heard it there, folks. Go to cheetah.org to uh, check out ways that you can help the Cheetah Conservation Fund, but also just go to my social media at Ross Safari, and I will be running a fundraiser there for probably two weeks or so to try to raise enough money to get a livestock guarding dog uh, sponsored for a year uh, from Ross Safari and, and all of the amazing listeners uh, to um, help CCF continue on that amazing path that they're on with that incredible project. I'm, I'm really excited about this and I think we can make it happen. So, so please consider digging deep. Uh, I appreciate it. I also want to say thank you to uh, my red panda level patrons, Laura Shank, Stephen Williamson, and to all of my patrons, you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash Ross Safari. And uh, yeah, but but rather than that, this month, I'd rather you go to uh, to my fundraiser. Let's let's help the folks at CCF out. They, they are incredible. All right. I think I, I think I've made that point now. So uh, thank you all for listening. And remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Rossi. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.